Uh, don't we usually, we usually have like fun banter before? Yeah, not always. I don't know. Right. This is a fun banter book. I know that's true. This is <laughs> honestly maybe one of the least fun uh, books that we've covered in a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it was an important book. Okay, well, let me do my warning here. So <laughs> yes. we are reading the first two volumes of Barefoot Gen by Keiji Nakazawa. And if you are going to read this book, be prepared for it to be full of tragedy, including death in the, the death of children, like Section. lots of uh, medical issues, uh, yeah. body horror, I guess you could call it, except reality. Yeah, real, real life body horror, um, Sex, like, sexual assaults. Yeah, uh, child abuse. Basically, it's a lot. Yeah. So be ready. So uh, I've introduced <laughs> our book. <laughs> Let's do, uh, I guess, a uh, character building question is where we start. Usually. Um, I tried to think of something light. I couldn't think of anything super light. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, my question is going to be, uh, do you have a strong memory of the Cold War? Since none of us are old enough to remember World War II, obviously, do you remember the Cold War? And if so, what is your biggest memory of that? Okay, I'm Jeff Ellis, and I was born in 1980, so I kind of caught the the tail end of the Cold War. I was probably I was too young to really like understand what was going on. Like I'm sure at some point I was like watching my parents watching news footage of the Berlin Wall coming down and not really understanding what that meant really so I mean honestly I think my memory is much more like cartoonish in that like I have memories of like spitting image which was like a British political satire cartoon where they would take politicians and make them into these ugly like muppets and they tried to re revive it when Trump came into office. Uh, anyways, but I just remember like these crazy characters like punching each other, right? And you'd have like a cartoon like Gorbachev uh, punching a cartoon Ra Ronald Reagan. And like, I think my friend had like a video game that was inspired by Spitting Image. And it was like all the world leaders as cartoon characters, like punching, attacking each other. And it's just like, you know, it's like... Cold War conflict, but just filtered through this like super cynical cartoon lens and just making everyone look kind of bad. And so like, I just, I just kind of remember Ronald Reagan as a cartoon character and Gorbachev as a cartoon character and just everything being very like hyper realism, but like, it was just sort of like, it was almost like felt like watching fiction. Like Ronald Reagan felt like a fictional character to me when I was a child. I don't think I really understood the gravity of what was happening in, with, with regards to the Cold War until I was much older. And I never had to duck and cover or do any like air raid siren drills. Uh, so I'm very thankful that I didn't have to experience that trauma. And I got out of the school system before the active shooter drills. So I really dodged uh, a couple bullets in Literally. my schooling. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, that's- Freezing, Jeffrey. I'm, I'm Jeff. <laughs> Yeah, I'm Jeff Ellis. I'm super old, and I just just missed all the crucial moments of the Cold War. Uh, but that's my memories of it. Okay, well, I'm Jam. I'm slightly younger, but I'm still also super old. Uh, I'm an elder millennial. I've already got my cane, and uh, but my memory is pretty similar to yours. Like the Cold War is something that was very present of mind to my parents, who were boomers, and I have heard stories of like what it was like for them to do those drills where you're like hiding under your desk and the the joke my dad would say is like put your head between your knees and kiss your ass goodbye is basically <laughs> like how the kids of that age kind of conceptualized it but for me as like a young person coming into consciousness 
I also kind of only really saw it reflected in media. And the one that sticks out in my memory the most is a film called Canadian Bacon, which oh, yeah. if you've if you've never seen it, I highly, highly recommend this movie. I still watch it. Like I try to watch it like once a year because it's so funny. The premise of Canadian Bacon during, starring John Candy is that it's the, the end of the Cold War, right? So the Cold War has now ended. And in there's all these arms manufacturers that are going out of business. It's so tragic. It's so bad because like they used to employ all these people to make guns to point at the Russians, but now they don't need it anymore. And so the, the president, or like, I guess primarily the, the lackeys surrounding the idiot president would, would convince him that they needed a new boogeyman, right? You know, it's like, we got to get this Cold War going again. Uh, and they decide to blame the Canadians. So they concoct this conspiracy to try and make it seem like Canadians are bad guys. And like, there's some arms in the CN Tower or something. The whole premise is ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. And the, the stereotypes of Canadians are just so over the top and bad that I think that's why I really appreciated it as a kid uh, because I was an American living in Canada. And it kind of really gave me an interesting perspective of like what my home country thought of my current country. And uh, the Cold War stuff was a little over my head, but it definitely gave me the most understanding of what it meant politically. Like there was a really interesting scene in Canadian Bacon where they actually invite the Russian, the current Russian president to the States to ask them if they could please resume the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> and the Russians are yeah. like, you won, we're tired, it's fine. We just came here for the chicken, goodbye. <laughs> it was uh, Michael Moore's best work, I think. Yeah, that was, and actually, yeah, that is, for anyone who's curious, that was Michael Moore's, I think, first and only fictional film and i think that is his best work was um, it really yeah i never yeah. put that together Interesting. i man i could go on and on about all the scenes in canadian bacon that i love oh, um, so it is this just, is not a canadian bacon podcast canadian bacon perfect is so it is okay i will just say it is a it is a perfect film you should all check it out and my favorite i just want to say my favorite part of canadian bacon was when they first cross the border they have uh van that has all these slogans written on it like death to canada like we're gonna get canada's the worst or whatever and this art mounty pulls them over and he's played that by dan, dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd. Yeah, yeah dan Aykroyd is a mounty and he pulls him over and he's just like i oh i think we got a problem here uh with the the words written on your van and then the john candy's like, oh oh ooh, some kids must have done that he's at sir sir it doesn't matter we have an official languages act all signage in Canada must be bilingual. And he makes him rewrite all the hate slogans against Canada in French. And then he's like, okay, that's better. And like, lets them go. That was the best. Because I grew up in Quebec and that was like the most <laughs> <laughs> Such a good movie. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, I am slightly older than Jeff. Uh, and so while I think most of my understanding of the Cold War as a child was still filtered through media, I did have maybe a bit more of an understanding of what was going on. Like, for example, like I never had to do like the air raid drills or anything like that. I'm not that old. I don't know when that stopped a long time ago, but I do have like very distinct memories of that air raid siren, uh, which was not helped by the fact that when I was in middle school, I lived in Ohio and they would use the air raid siren as a tornado warning which in retrospect seems like a terrible idea. Why would you use the same sound for a tornado as for the world is going to end now? But, <laughs> but anytime that sound is in like a video game or a movie and it's like, it gives me chills still. Cause like I at least had the presence of mind to understand what that means. Yeah, um, scary. I also remember being forced in school to watch a movie about what would happen if there was a nuclear war, which was, uh, like I haven't rewatched it since then. I just remember it being lots and lots of bad stuff. Was it? Uh, I just looked it up. It's called The Day After, starring okay. Steve Gutenberg. This is how old this movie is, and it's basically like the Cold War, like the the nuclear war happens, and then Steve Gutenberg gets to watch everybody die. So fun. Everything yeah. about this great stuff. Super fun. Yeah. So the <laughs> high, I think that the highlight of this episode is uh, the like 
three minutes we spent talking about Canadian bacon and now we can it's get all from here. nuclear holocaust. Um, <laughs> just, yeah, I, I maybe just before we get into the book, I was also just going to mention that I, as, as a long-term listeners, and as you also know, I've been, li- I, w- I lived in Japan for two and a half years and I have actually gotten to travel to Hiroshima and to Nagasaki and visit the peace museums respectively and see some of the different memorials and monuments to the nuclear, to the nuclear bombing of Japan. And yeah, it's, I think just reading this work and having actually been to the, the kind of ground zero, it, I think really adds a little more impact to it. And uh, anyways, I don't want to, talk too much about Japan. We want to talk about the book, but like, I definitely, there's, there's quite a culture in Japan of sort of look what the Americans did to us. Uh, look at the, the, the outcomes of, of this bombing. And it's not to say that I, two wrongs don't make a right. So I think we want to talk about the wrongness of dropping a nuclear bomb, but something that I always bothered me and something that bothered me reading this book a little bit, which I think is my own baggage is just I do find that Japan hasn't really reconciled with their past the same way Germany has in terms of actions taken in World War II. Uh, Like when I was living in Japan, there was active controversies over politicians visiting the Yasukuni War Shrine, which is like enshrining and honoring many of the people that committed like atrocities in World War II. And there was a whole scandal where NHK had broadcast a documentary about what happened to Korean women during World War II. And that just bummed out the Japanese population. So they were kind of questioning, why would we let a broadcaster bum us out with the actual history we did? Uh, And I don't know, I just like, I wish that they would be more, I wish there was a graphic novel as renowned as Barefoot Gan that could talk about the other side of the World War II conflict, because I feel like it's very much focused in one direction. But that being said, like, I think we should focus on dropping nuclear bombs on cities and why you should never do that, no matter what happened. Okay. Um, So, I mean, a couple comments I want to attach to that. Like, first of all, I think part of the reason I picked this book is because it spends so much time being an anti-war book. Like, it's not just the Americans dropped a bomb on us. The entire first volume is basically the Japanese government oppressing the main character and his family for being anti-war. Yeah. uh, And all the terrible things that the Japanese people are going through that the book firmly places at the feet of Japanese militarism. And I feel like the, I mean, you're right that, like Japan generally probably needs to contend with its history as many countries do, but I feel like it would, I I don't know that it's on this specific book to have to do that work. I think the fact that it brings it up at all Mm. in a work that is about the bombing of Hiroshima is pretty good. Like there's a whole, we'll get into like details later, but there's a whole character who's like, uh, a Korean prisoner of war, essentially. And we see the fact that we see him at all and get mm. anything from his perspective is, I think, important. Like yeah. the, the analogy that I was thinking of, because you Brent, you mentioned this to me earlier, so I had a heads up. This is why I have this prepared. But the analogy I was thinking of was like, if you look at Ducks, uh, Ducks is about misogyny and labor issues in Northern Canada. Uh, and it mentions the way that this impacts Indigenous people. It does not make that the focus of the book. Right. Because I don't think that would be, like, Kate Beaton is maybe not the best person to do that. She is the best person to write ducks. Right. So I, I feel like acknowledging it is pretty good. Yeah. No, no, fair enough. Sorry. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I hope I'm not, I wasn't like, I don't want to be grandstanding or anything. I just like, I have complicated feelings about Japan and World War II and nuclear bombs. And so I just wanted to kind of get that off my chest at the start and then focus on the work 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree though. I actually, when I was reading this to the end, I think my takeaway was like, wow, they actually did touch on things more than I actually imagined they would. So yeah, credit to this book. I think it is a pretty good portrait of that time period. And I hope that, I mean, I, I do think that, again, it's also maybe important to note that I think if you go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the number one message at both of those locations is peace. Like, they're just like, peace, let's just have peace. Let's just stop fighting everyone for any reason. And let's just make sure that nobody ever has this happen to them again. And so like, that is, yeah, like ultimately, I think they their their goals are in the right direction. So, yeah. Uh, there's also a book which I haven't read, but I want to, by Shigeru Mizuki about his experience in World War II, because he was uh, a soldier in the war, and it's sort of the history of how this happened for Japan. So, I, like I said, I haven't read it, so I don't know how well it addresses Japanese war crimes, but it, at least that's the reputation it has for, like, at least addressing it. It's called Showa, A History of Japan. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I haven't heard that. that. I have heard about that. That is, I should put that on my to read list because I was familiar with that and I do love Mizuki Shigeru. Uh, okay, so one, one more thing before we do our initial thoughts is I wanted to talk a little bit about the creator. Keiji Nakazawa was six years old when a bomb was dropped on the city he lived in, a nuclear bomb. So he's basically, this, this story is a fictionalized version of his life. Like he survived Hiroshima, most of his family did not. His mother survived until the 60s, but then died of cancer because of radiation poisoning from the war. And after his mother died, he was just really angry and wanted needed an outlet for this. So he decided he was going to use comics to get across his message about how horrible nuclear weapons are. So he made a few different attempts with comics some fictional he did a, like a straight autobio as well but then his publisher that the straight autobio one was just like 45 pages and his publisher said okay we want more of this can you give us more of this and so this book is the result of that where uh, he's basically taken his own story and expanded it into something that works better as a series of graphic novels but it's still very close to the things that actually happened to him. It's basically, I think he's just kind of mixing in other things that happened to other people and uh, making the main character physically present for events that he himself was not there for to make it more dramatic, that kind of thing. And he lived until just recently. He died in 2012. Uh, And then this book series was probably one of the first manga translated into English there was uh, there have been a couple of different nonprofit groups that have worked to translate this book and publish it in as many parts of the world as possible because they felt that this was I mean a lot of this was done during the Cold War so obviously their investment in this was they want people to understand what happens if you actually use nuclear weapons okay but I feel like I've talked enough for now so Jam what yeah. did you think of this book Well, further to kind of like your point of the introduction of like why this was published and why it was translated, I wanted to make a note on accessibility because Mm -hmm. I feel like a few of us had a a surprisingly hard time getting a hold of these books. So it is a book I've read before. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I just need to read it again to refresh myself. And we discovered that the first digital edition is available, but not book two. So if you've listened to this and maybe you haven't read it or you haven't read it in a while, I highly encourage you to buy the digital edition of book one, because I hope that will send the message that people are still interested in this book and it's worth releasing digital versions of the rest of the series. Print editions are still in stock, but Um, for supply chain issues, it was challenging to get a hold of them. Yeah, I had I could not get my hands on a copy of volume two. Uh, the website I used claimed it was available. They never managed to find one for me. Yeah. And so I find that really distressing, actually. Yeah. Uh, I, I finally managed to get a copy from VPL. So VPL does have copies of the whole series, which I'm really grateful for. 
Uh, however, I had to like go there and read both of them in one day and in like one sitting, which is not the way I recommend to read. No, no, that's not. <laughs> that can't yeah, have been fun. Really sure. unfortunate day. Um, but yeah, so like in terms of my overall reactions to this book is I'm super glad it exists. I find it's, it's manages to be, it, it manages to make this really personal, which obviously it was personal to the author, but I really like the way in which all of the events are framed through this very personal window and narrative and like the larger events going on, like the political events, you know, are filtered through just kind of the everyday struggles of trying to get through a really difficult situation of being a, a low income. So like being a poor peasant, basically <laughs> trying to survive in the context of this war. So even before the bomb was dropped and like functionally the world ended, uh, it was really difficult and it was really uh, a struggle. And I find that's probably my favorite way to learn about history. I find when I'm learning about history and it's taken in more of a macro perspective, I tend to lose interest. But when it's explored at the lens of like everyday people and how it affected them, I tend to become much more interested. And so I really value this book for that. Uh, and I think it's the best book about the worst thing. It's a, it's a really well-executed book about something that was just deeply horrifying uh, and should not have happened and should not happen again. And yeah, it's funny, like you, you've mentioned kind of, Jeff, your complexities about your feelings of uh, Japan and the war. And so like I mentioned, I'm American and I kind of got this kind of propaganda version of this message from the American side. And so that kind of defines my relationship to this war. And that's always been complex to me as well. And the line that the American children get, even to this day, probably, mm -hmm. is that like we quote unquote had to do this or else the war would have taken much longer and more people would have died, which. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot. Of it, that's not the only example of things that happened in World War II where after the fact people say, if this had not happened, it would have been this for sure. Yeah. Like right. literally it is not possible to know what would have happened. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's true, but we can't rewind history and test it. Yeah. yeah. And so like history is um, something that's being continuously interpreted, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that interpretation. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I feel I, like this, one of the things this book does, and I don't know for sure whether this is intentional or not, but all of the th things that are typically used to, to justify why this was necessary are things about like what was going on in Japan at the time, what was the culture like? And I feel like this book pulls those arguments apart very effectively like for example the argument that japan was just not going to stop fighting there was no way that the army was going to stand down and like meanwhile we have so many examples of characters in this book who are actively trying to get out of fighting and failing mm. yeah um and we're we're shown the the ways that they are forced sometimes or pushed or compelled to fight, to participate against their will. I think something that I've been reflecting on a lot as I've been reflecting on this book and kind of our context and our, our modern context, let's say, is that in order to push a person, uh, like any person of this culture, to do a terrible thing to another person, you have to do a lot, or sorry, like a government has to do a lot of work to dehumanize mm. another person and like in in some of the context that we've seen in this book like the dehumanization is like anyone who is not in favor of what we're doing like that's yeah. kind of the culture that they built and I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I took away from this not that it wasn't something I knew before but it's like you have to be very very careful if anyone is telling you that any living being is less yeah. And that's like a major, major red flag to look out for, because I think as we enter 
a period of increasing conflict, let's say, I mean, I don't, and we're not censored. I'm just trying to be as balanced as I can be. Uh, as we're entering a period of increasing conflict, they're going to have to push people in various ways to achieve various things. Mm. Um, and also to kind of like take this perspective and like have a bit of maybe not sympathy, but like understand that people are subjected to a lot of ridiculous messaging and it just comes at you like again and again and again and again. And uh, it's inescapable. And then you have kind of this social envelope that removes your choice or makes those, you know, makes those resisting choices so much more difficult and so much more penalizing. And so like it's, it. history likes to be painted in black and white, I think sometimes when mm-hmm. that is almost never true or probably 100% of the time it's never true. <laughs> yeah, not even, not even with fascism. Like this is a, yeah. a story that is set in a fascist government there's a lot of characters who are in, the, in this book who are like totally on board with this, but yeah. not everyone. And even the ones who are, like, I think we're shown the framework that led them to that point. Yeah, I yeah. think that, yeah, I mean, reflecting more on the first volume, it's like, I definitely think they do a good job of showing the kind of the trap of the society that they're in. It's like Gen's father thinks that the war is ridiculous and thinks that people shouldn't be sacrificing their lives for the emperor and that it's all garbage. And he just wants to like, you know, make clay pots and like live a peaceful life, but he can't. And if any, any resistance he puts up is just causing not only problems for him, but problems for his family. Right. And so like, if he wants to feed his kids, he has to sort of be careful like where he draws his lines and where he like pushes back. And I don't know, I really enjoyed the scene where like he has to do his mandatory military drills and he shows up like drunk and he's eaten all these like, I forget what he like ate a bunch of yams sweet or potatoes, something. Yeah. So he made actually sweet potatoes and so farting. And so like, they're just like, oh, how dare you show up drunk and farting? And he's just like, oh, I don't know. Like, it's the best I can do for you guys. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was a scene later on with his son, right? His son who was working at the factory and Mm -hmm. felt compelled to join the service because like he couldn't deal with the the dishonor perhaps is the word of his father being labeled as a traitor and dishonor in the sense that like he was being actively bullied every day by the people he was working with his classmates uh and he just couldn't take it anymore and decided you know what going and dying in the war is better than this yeah yeah and this this uh so my grandfather served in world war ii and uh, I, it reminded me of a story that I kind of heard secondhand because my grandpa didn't talk about the war. But my grandmother, I remember telling me, it's like at the time that war broke out, he was uh, in university and there was a university exception for people having to serve. But the shame, like the peer pressure of not serving for an able-bodied man was so great that he ended up dropping out of college and going to serve, even if it like he didn't right. want to. But like that social pressure was so severe right yeah i mean it's a non-fascist government yeah (laughs) that's like going overseas and it's like it's not even impacting your uh, i mean in a limited way it's impacting your own home country yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i again this is like i have an interesting perspective on this because like you know living in japan like there's a real like monoculture and there's a real good of the many kind of mentality and there's a slogan that has a phrase that used to come up all the time, which is the nail that stands up gets the hammer. And that was sort of this messaging in Japan, like it was just like, you don't want to stand out. You don't want to, you know, be noticeable. You want to fit in with everybody else. You want to just blend in. Uh, that's how we keep our society running smooth is we don't have people, you know, agitating. And like, it's interesting because I experienced the two sides of this where it's like, you can't just like play music on your phone and like, you know, talk loud on the phone to your friend. Like that's unacceptable, you know, which is like for the good of the many. And like people will make sure they move in such a way that everyone can file in to the train and get a seat. And like, they'll make sure everyone can get off the train. That's great. It's the good of the many. 
But then it's like, yeah, if you're kind of like, hey, um, where where are all your queer people? No, we, we don't have those here. We, those those people don't exist in Japan. You're like, uh-huh, right. Like the nail that stands up gets the hammer. It's There's good and there's bad parts of that. And I see this reflected in this first volume of Barefoot Again in this like fascist society they're, they're in where it's just like, no, we're we're fighting Americans. Like this is what we're doing. We're taking over the world. And like anybody who's like, ah, oh, maybe we shouldn't. It's like, no, yeah, they get repercussions because this is the fabric of society. This is we're all moving as one in this direction, and you can't question that. And it's, I know, it's yeah, it's like I've seen the, the 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 positives and the negatives of that kind of groupthink. And uh, I think this definitely, uh, I I resonated with a lot of that stuff like I get that sense of the societal pressures and the shaming that's like a huge aspect of Japan it's like that face culture and it's some of these really complicated situations they have to navigate especially in the second half like when yeah when they're trying to deal with this other family they're trying to live with it's like it seems more complicated like it felt more complicated than in, it would be in Canada and I think it's the the, the society structured in this way where you have to sort of save face and you have to sort of work with people in a certain way or you like you lose because you just like you lose face because you're the one acting out it's yeah it's complicated dynamics so that you're talking about the part where the gan and his mother have fled to the country and they're staying with his mother's friend yeah but his mother's friend's stepmother yes. doesn't want them living in the house and so yeah, rather he, than just say i want you to leave she convinces the kids to bully yeah again yeah and then as a, as a sort of a sneaky way to get them to leave and then eventually they like accuse them of theft and then it's easier for his mother to like sign a confession than to like actually stand up for herself like that just felt like a very japanese situation of just yeah. like easier it's from not, a consequence perspective yeah like it's not fair but it's just easier to like sign this confession and like take this dishonor than to try and like actually like push back and like defend defend myself you know though though i don't know i i have to say like reading this book and like man i applaud you jam for reading them back to back uh <laughs> it was not because it wasn't my preference because I, I i like <laughs> I read volume one and then I took a big long break and then I read volume two and I probably took multiple breaks in the middle of volume two because like, I gotta say, man, this is like a torture chamber for the characters. Like, yeah, it is not a speed read. Yeah, no, I Every... apologize for picking this book. I knew it wouldn't no, I knew it'd be it, rough. No. It, um, it wasn't, it was an appropriate pick and yeah. it's a timely pick and I'm glad to have reread it. I'm it's, it's disappointed a, it's that I, I'm disappointed in the lack of accessibility to this book because I think it's important. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that like by highlighting this book, we can in one small way advocate for its preservation and accessibility. Well, uh, speaking of accessibility, I had an advantage over both of you because I picked these up from a used bookstore in Japan. And these were uh, the second edition of the translation. And this was a nonprofit society called, I think they're still the same group, but there's a nonprofit society called Project Gen who uh, translated and lettered this basically for free so that they could have this book to distribute. And in the forward, they talk about the project and it sounds like they're like, we'd love to do volume three and four, but we just don't have <laughs> the manpower or the, the budget which like considering where volume two ends, I'm like, fuck, I really wish you guys could translate and release three and four because it really just ends abruptly. Uh, they um, did eventually. Like the, the edition okay. that I have is a later edition. I only have volume one because like everything else is out of print apparently, but the same group went and they, there's 10 volumes total. Yeah, and VPL does have all the way up to 10. Okay. So they do exist in English. Yeah. Okay, okay. So That's they did good. finally get there. It's just that now they're falling out of print and then- okay they're not available again. I'm okay. That's, that's good. I mean, I'd be curious to see your pages compared to my pages. Um, I'm going to send like some scans that we can add to the notes, but like all of the pages here are very clearly hand lettered. And I don't think they had an aims guide when they did it. So it's just somebody like with a marker, just 
lovingly trying to like fill the English words in all of these balloon spaces. That's a and, lot of work. Yeah, yeah will, ours was not, I don't think. But no, will, this is digital lettering. Okay, but see, because I was going to say, normally with manga, I really bounce off the lettering. And I actually really love the edition I have because that it's hand lettered, it it fits the balloon really nicely in each balloon. Like the letters are drawn roughly the same size, but they're also organized in a way that it just sort of flows nicely. Like if, if there's two balloons, sometimes they'll just like, they'll just go right across so it doesn't look awkward. And anyways, I don't know. It's even though they didn't use an Ames guide, like I feel like the letters are very warm and human and it feels like it's part of the artwork where a lot of the times with the digital translations, they are a little bit cold and they often just, I don't know, the graphic designer in me bounces off the fact that they have awkward line breaks because they're like letting the balloon dictate the words, not the other way around. So yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll put some scans up. We can compare the two versions, but I, I do like the version I have for the lettering. For anyone who doesn't know a listener, uh, an AIMS guide is like a specialized ruler for lettering. So it just keeps the spacing of uh, lines, the spacing between lines, I think. Yeah. Really, um, yeah. Keeps them consistent. Yeah. yeah. Specifically for hand lettering, because you don't obviously wouldn't need that for a font. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a ruler to, to do letting by hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, like what, what do you guys think? Because I definitely, like, I understand that this is a book about the bombing of Hiroshima and, like, that's not a picnic. But I also just, I found myself by the end of volume two, I was just so exhausted because it's just, like, everything bad is going to happen. It's just, like, we we found, like, we're start, like, we got bombed. We're burned. We're starving. We found rice. Someone stole the rice. Like, <laughs> The, you know, we, we, we made it to this place that now like another bad thing is going to happen. It's just like, it's like bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And like, I understand, like, I don't know. It's like when, when, especially in volume two, when everyone's fleeing Hiroshima, where a nuclear bomb just went off, all these people are horribly burned, many of them dying, lots of people dying of radiation sickness and there's all these refugees like going into the countryside who survived. And I mean, I don't know, it was, I mean, I guess it's sad because like you see the same lack of humanity to, you know, refugees today, but I just found it, maybe I think this is from living in Japan. You're so, I'm so used to this idea of like, you know, we are Japan, we are many, we, we are, we are one, we like, you know, like we, we work collectively. And so this idea that like, oh, well you got nuked. So mm, get out of here. We don't have enough food for you. Like I get that maybe food was scarce, but it was just really, I was just surprised that there wasn't a single person who had an ounce of compassion for these people who've been nuked. Like I, and I get, I mean, I get that. I'm sure that was real. I'm sure there was really people that were just like, oh, these damn refugees from Hiroshima, like get out of here. I don't have enough food for you. Like I, I get that that's a real thing, but like, I don't know. I just, it's like two volumes of just like everybody except for the main character is an asshole for the most part. Like everyone's horrible. Well, we, we there's, there's exceptions. <laughs> there are people who, who have moments. Um, like, I feel like, this is maybe evidence that the the sort of the the spirit of like pulling together and cooperating has been broken by the mm. war. Mm -hmm. Like that the part of what the fascist regime does was, well, we can't have people against us. So everybody has to be scared and starving all the mm. time. Mm -hmm. So they won't help each other. So right. that we're the only ones they can turn to. Like if you want food, you better join the army. Yeah. Right. Right. And the, yeah, there's a couple of things I want to say about this. One is I do want to echo what you said, John, about like this is a population that has already been pushed to the brink and has been at the brink for years, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing is that nobody had a framework for what was happening. Mm. This like no one even at this time understood the concept of radiation sickness. Mm -hmm. No one understood radioactivity you know yeah, like there was a, I mean, a yeah like moment. radioactivity was ex 
scientifically explored, but no one had to deal with it in their day-to-day life. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the framework of society had been frayed at mm. that point. Yeah. I think to your point, the there's a scene in the second volume where there's this this man in the countryside who had been in Hiroshima for the bombing and escaped to his brother's house in the country. And he was like deathly ill with radiation sickness, but like nobody understood what was happening. They thought he might be contagious. Like they had no way of knowing that, no, it's you can't catch radiation sickness. They just see what's happening to him. And they're like, okay, well, everyone who was in Hiroshima caught this thing Mm-hmm. we're just going to lock him in a room and hope he survives and if he doesn't well we what do, at least we're okay now so the other key thing that i think this book does really well is that from a historical distance you can think of the bombing of hiroshima as a singular event and i think the point that the author was trying to make is that it was not a singular event this horrible thing caused a cascade failure Mm. and like Mm -hmm. it continued being horrible because it's like oh yeah there was this horrible thing that happened but then you survived congrats and then it's over and it's like no not right this has like severe ramifications for years and years and years and years uh Mm -hmm. up to the point where his like his mother died of cancer because of this radiation exposure yeah, I think that's why there's 10 volumes, because the, the yeah. bombing happens at the end of volume one. So that's not the end of the story. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, and I, I, again, it's like I, I appreciate like showing the ramifications. And I, I do. I, I, yeah, I accept that there are definitely ramifications to the, the bombing. I don't know. I it, Yeah, whatever. I think I just it was just kind of a bummer where I was like, oh, my God, like, yeah. It's like, can these people not catch a single break? And I like, I understand that like they're in a bad situation, but you're just like, oh my God, like it's one bad thing after another, after another, after another. And it maybe and that's the that's, point. <laughs> that is the point. Yeah. They're like, they're trying to convey what that is like and it like how spirit breaking that is. And I think like if you want to bring a parallel to the modern context, it's like compare 9 11 to where we are today. So 9 11 in New York City was one of those examples of like something else horrible happening, but people generally banded together to take care of the people who were affected with exceptions. I mean, we could spend Mm -hmm. an hour talking about that. Uh, But then now, after there's been so much like pressure on the population and social fraying, you know, people are getting shot for like pulling into someone's driveway someone tried to make food for people in their community in their garden and their garden was like pulled up and salted (laughs) like just like crazy things have been happening uh because there's been just this like continuous campaign of dehumanization as we as we kind of become you know it's like uh that is what it takes Hmm. i think that's the most that was the most depressing thing about volume one was like reading some of the interactions between Gen and his family and some of the fascist, pro-fascist people. And I'm like, I have talked to that guy on Twitter. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Like, sure. (laughs) Yeah, I actually found the second half of the second volume way less stressful. Maybe Mm. it's because this is the second time I've read these books. So like I knew going into my second reading who was gonna live and who was gonna die. So like much less painful to read the first volume when he basically loses almost his entire family. Yeah. Um, The way, the way he loses his family. Yeah. Just such stupid things. Like your house is on fire. There's like, but everybody's house is on fire. So there's nothing you can do. So, yeah, I mean, I I knew there's this kind of like building pressure for the entire first volume because I knew where it ended and like things are getting worse and worse and worse. And then the first half of the second volume is like the couple of days after the bombing. So it's like everybody's dying around you and everything is awful and terrible. And then at least they escape to the countryside and all they have to worry about is starving to death. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a relief. Right. right. At least from a reader point. That's a solvable problem. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's not immediate. It's like we, we could wait till tomorrow to solve this if we had to. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny, you're making me, now Now that we're talking about this, it makes me think a lot about the first, like, page of volume one, where, you know, it's like, 
you've got to make the wheat strong. So you step, you stomp on the wheat so it grows back stronger. And I sort of feel like that in a way is a repeating motif in this work is like, because I guess that is maybe the, 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 the hopeful thread here is that Gen has lots of bad things happen to him. Gen has lots of bad days. Gen has moments of hopelessness, but Gen bounces back each time. Like Gen refuses to surrender to despair. Like even when his mother's kind of checking out, like he's just like, no, like we have to keep moving forward here. Like we can't quit. We have to just keep going. And I think that's maybe the, that's maybe the hopeful core, the hopeful core of this book is just like this idea of not giving up even when everything is going wrong and everything is not working out. It's like, you're still, you're like the wheat that's getting stepped on. You're going to grow back stronger, hopefully. Yeah, I feel um, like that's only ever a hope, at least as far as the first two volumes are concerned. We, we never see the result of that. We never get to right. see the wheat being strong, right? so, so to speak. Yeah. It's like, like a lot of people die. Yes. Yeah. They, no, they no, don't I mean, get stronger. Yeah. No, no. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that is the, the key theme that it's built around. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of realism to this. Actually, I don't know. I felt like I was getting, you guys can tell me what you think of this, but I, I felt a little bit of like, I was getting kind of like whiplash in terms of like the content of the story versus the like art and the execution. Like uh, I was listening to someone discussing like a, a Tezuka manga and Tezuka was trying to deal, deal with really, really adult subject matter, but he was still drawing like Tezuka. And, and so they were talking about how it seemed like Tezuka had this style and this way of storytelling that was really good for like kid stories. And then he was unable to sort of change this in it. He just did the same thing, but told like an adult story. And I, that was kind of a feeling I had looking through this is like, there's often times like where it's like an adult hitting a child in in not a funny way, but it still sort of like has again, like bouncing with like a weird humorous expression on his face. Like, like there was weird little, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's just like tropes of that time period in manga that I that are just going over my head but there are moments in the ex like in the execution of the storytelling that it felt like it was maybe being like too lighthearted. like it's like mm. it's like some guy's punching a kid and it's not really funny but it's drawn in a way that is like slapstick if that makes sense like I sort of felt a bit of a disconnect in some of it yeah, I think partly it's like this was drawn in the 70s and I don't think there was like this was kind of the style of manga at the time. There wasn't like right. a, a lot of as much variation as there is now, but also like, uh, I mean, I don't know this. This is the only artist who could have told this story. It's his story. Right. I don't think he's going to win any art awards. <laughs> but I think like the art is enough. Yeah, uh, actually, I had a, a different reaction. So like, I do agree with you that like, at times, the tone is a little bit difficult to follow. But I felt that something about that contrast. So like, we can think of Scott McCloud's theory of relatability, right? Mm. Where like, the more simplified and more cartoony something is like the easier it actually is to relate to. And then to have those cartoony, simplistic drawings contrasted with some of the horrors that are being depicted. And it's like depicted well enough that we can understand what's going on. I feel like if it was a, a really rendered, a really detailed and mm -hmm. quote unquote mature book, I don't know whether it would have mm. as much impact right. because it would feel kind of just more like, you know, like the horror genre. Right. right. I mean, Where it I kind guess... of just like these images just kind of wash over you when they're, they have yeah. a certain uniformity. Yeah, I guess sorry, I'm not, I don't think I needed it. I don't think I wanted it drawn photorealistic, but just like, like there were just like little moments like where if like someone's punching again on the top of the head, it's like they'll do a close up of his face and he's got this like comedic, like, ee, you know, or like he gets hit and he, they show him like bouncing around like a rubber ball or something. And it's just like, the it's not about the drawing style. It's just like some of the like, 
storytelling choices. It's just like, yeah, um, I, I agree with you, but I think it's more towards John of just like, this was just kind of how comics were. Right. right. I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. So if this is a, someone who is not uh, a professional mangaka, you know, they're like, I mm-hmm. want to draw a manga about this. It's like, this is kind of how they understood a manga right. was supposed to be. Right. Yeah, I mean, and a manga for kids too. I mean, as right. much as like, I don't think this is a story for kids in the sense that anyone in North America would understand a story for kids. I do think that's the intent is that kids who weren't around for World War II should read this to understand the things their parents won't tell them about. Right. And so it's, it's written in a style that's like, not just of its time, but like for a specific demographic, I think. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, I guess, you know, that is something worth noting is that this was sort of, I think, a young adult. Was this a dope or was it Uh, Shonen? Shonen, yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that it is for like a younger audience. And so maybe- I'm going to look up the the publisher. There's- So I could could imagine based on that, that, you know, maybe even, and I don't know, but I could imagine there being like an editor who's just like, oh, don't, don't just have the kid get- hit we want to have them bounce around like a rubber ball because that's what happens when kids get hit in these comics yeah that actually sounds like super plausible to me yeah the the original publisher for this was shukam shonen jump so weekly boys jump i'm not sure how that's related to shonen jump but yeah i mean you can see that kind of thing happening in shonen jump now I mean, yeah, yeah. though, like has, especially in some of the early parts, it's like very kind of like goofy and comedic. And then like, you know, 10 volumes in it's war crime. So like, (laughs) yeah, right. There is this kind of disconnect there as well that is more like, I agree with you. Like it's not effective in what it's trying to achieve because of it, Mm. but I think it's, it's not, mm, I don't think it was chosen thoughtfully, maybe. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. Chosen for you know, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's like, yeah. like, like using halftones, you know, right. it's like, it's just kind of, it's what you do. It's a manga. Right. So we right. had to use halftones because it's a manga. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No right. one spent a lot of time thinking about, should we do halftones? Is that appropriate for this work? Right. Right. And I mean, like, again, I think it, it does. Yeah. Like what it does cover, I think is pretty, pretty impressive. It's just like, there were a few moments where I just felt like it was getting a bit slapstick yeah, right. and I think in the writing too, like it, it spends a lot of time in sort of the range of melodrama. Oh, God. The dialogue is extremely dramatic. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. This is this is the work we have. We don't have another manga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By a survivor of Hiroshima. I mean, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's like whatever the flaws are, I think it, it has, an, like there's enough here where you're just like, these are clearly real anecdotes of real things that happened and in a way like maybe the cartoonishness actually maybe that's beneficial like maybe if it was too yeah maybe it was too accurate you'd just be like I can't read this or like the fact that it's a little bit silly it tricks you and then you read through and then you're like oh my god this is super traumatic then you care about the characters (laughs) yeah like I would even say that maybe there, there's like Gen is as desperate a person as anyone else in this story. He doesn't always like do good things. He does some pretty awful things too. But yeah. because he's this cartoonish protagonist, like you can't not empathize with him. Yeah. So you care everything, every single thing that happens to him. So I have a, so I actually have a really interesting question based exactly on this topic. Gen biting someone's fingers clean off. Comedic exaggeration or fact like based in fact don't know right i have sounds too weird to be made up yeah i kind of agree yeah though that happened like okay i don't know if people completely lost a finger in each incident but there was multiple times where gen and his brother would bite people's fingers and i was like what the fuck is this is this like some is this like, is this a thing? Was this like, no, I don't think kids, so. Kids bite fingers. Like, cause See, that's was... the thing that makes me think that maybe there was one real incident like this. And he's like trying to expand his story to be fiction. So he's got to have more 
stuff happen. And so right. he has the thing that really happened happen twice. Right. And it's, yeah. it's plausible. Like it's just yeah. plausible enough yeah. that it's like a super, super desperate kid could exert that much force. Yeah. I mean, that's super fucked up. I'm <laughs> yeah, it's it's I'm pretty messed up. Like it's I, probably well, I don't know, a lot of messed up stuff happens. Far from the worst thing. Yeah, far from the worst, but like very like just it really shakes you out of present day, I feel. Yeah. It really it really kind of underscores the desperation of the situation uh-huh. because it is yeah. such so such an extreme thing to do in basically in defense, like and in, in kind of self-defense. Yeah, because yeah. there's no one there's no one else gonna come and help him out. He's that's right. what else he's gonna do at that point. Right. You have no good options. Yeah. Uh, also just the fact that so much of the book is just dealing with hunger. Yeah. That seems so much the product of someone who lived through this, where every day your main concern is what am I gonna eat today? I've got nothing. Right. Like all this, like the the being having a nuclear bomb dropped on you is a, a week-long event. And the yeah. rest of your life is like, I can't eat today. Yeah. One of yeah. the, yeah, one of the things that really drove that home for me was the children eating dry rice. Yeah. Like just taking dry rice kernels and crunching them in their mouth. And like, I was like, that's not how you eat rice. Like, <laughs> I don't think, like, I, I don't know, maybe someone might send us a message. Like maybe if there's any Japanese or people of Japanese descent that want to tell me that eating raw rice kernel was like a fun snack you did when you were a kid. But like, so. I really just, that felt like just desperation. Like I'm a kid. I don't know how to cook. So I'm just going to chew on these rice kernels. If I um, wait, if I take the time to cook <laughs> this rice kernel, someone might steal it from me by the time yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. The same thing happens with the sweet potatoes. Like they just, yeah, raw sweet potatoes. Sweet potato that's not good raw. either. Yeah. So it's like, you're so hungry right? and you've been waiting so long that the time it takes to cook something is too much. Yeah, There's too much risk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. And I also like, I mean, I remember, you know, every meal I had in Japan came with rice on the side. And so like, when you start this work and Gan and his family are eating like gruel, cause like they don't get rice cause the rice is being allocated for the soldiers. Like, I'm just like, that's messed up like no like every Japanese meal needs to have like a bowl of rice on the side like that's just that's just a staple like you have to have your rice like how do you live without rice like that's crazy (laughs) you don't yeah yeah that's exactly it yeah it gets like very very desperate very quickly um Mm -hmm. because and also just the fact that some families seem okay like they've got food well, not every family is starving. It's very frustrating. It's uh, wealth. Yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're wealthy and pro-fash, you can. Yeah. The fact that they're still rice. like things, you still have to pay money for food. Like people are literally dying of starvation. And like, oh no, if you don't have like five yen, like forget it. Yeah. It's interesting. There wasn't a rationing system. That's, that's that wasn't spoken to, right? Fascism, I, I would mm. guess. I mean, at, we want at, people to be starving. at a certain point in uh, volume two, some soldiers come by with like rice cakes and they throw them off the back of a truck mm. to some of the refugees. Yeah, we never see those but, guys again. They never but like back. that just seemed like maybe a quick Band-Aid thing that the, the government are like, well, the people might rise up against us if we don't give them <laughs> something. So like, ah. <laughs> but it's also like one of the most compelling reasons to become a soldier in that context. Mm, yeah, like the yeah, rice is reserved for soldiers. So hey, yeah, join the army. You got like well, I mean, that's where the phrase three hots and a cock" comes from, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was this was why uh, Gen's brother joined the part of why Gen's brother joined the army too is that it would like help raise their social status and potentially get him in a position where he could provide rice to his family. Yeah, they don't um, have to share their food with him. Yeah, like. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, it is a real like, it is a real rock and a hard place like situation. Like there is no good options throughout this book. And again, I think maybe maybe what I'm bouncing off is that it's just like that was the reality of the situation. And for me, I'm just like, oh, my God, like I just cannot wrap my head around just not having any options and that you're just sort of sitting there with hopelessness like 
there's no food and I guess I'll just go to sleep and hopefully I'll be alive tomorrow. Eh, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's an uncommon experience in the world. No. Yeah. Um, I'm not happy note. Yeah. <laughs> running out of time. Any final thoughts? I mean, this is just like a, a quick sidebar here, but like when I read volume two and Gan got picked up by the soldier and he very rapidly died of radiation poisoning. I felt compelled to look this up and like, like that guy, that that's not the reality. That guy, like you would actually be having those symptoms for much longer and it would take much more time for you to die, which I understand for narrative simplicity. Like they telescope that just so they can like educate you on what radiation sickness is. But like when I actually looked into the reality of it, I'm like, oh, this is worse than what's depicted in this comic. Um, don't don't just stay away from radiation, everyone. This is <laughs> do not if you can don't get irradiated. It sounds horrible. Anyways, sorry, uh, that was my one little sidebar. <laughs> my my concluding thought is that even though we haven't addressed it directly, one of the major reasons we wanted to return to this work is that we are now at a place in the world where we are pointing nuclear weapons at each other again. And I hope that we can remember collectively that there is never a good use for any of these. And don't ever let any organization or person tell you that a living being is worth less. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I mean, yeah, outside of nuclear weapons being pointed at people, I just think, again, going back to a lot of the stuff from volume one, if anyone's, yeah, anyone who's trying to tell you others are the problem and others need to suffer and, you know, you're great. Like, yeah, you just, that's not a good scene, man. Like it's this, this sort of, we're all living on the same planet together and we've got a, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm struggling this with this, you know, in my day to day, in trying to see the humanity in the people that seem to refuse to see humanity in others. But like, I am try trying to see the humanity in everyone. And some people make it a lot easier than others. And it's probably not who you're, anyways. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I think we just need to, I think this is a good work for just, yeah, I think looking at a little bit of the dangers of groupthink and yeah, othering people. And that's something we all need to be on guard for. I think my final thought is wherever you are in the world, at whatever time period, find Gen's dad. Find the person who is like telling you the truth that like this war is a really, really bad idea and team up with him. Like yeah. Mr. Nakaoka, like that's who you want as your ally. Oh, Mr. Nakaoka is <laughs> awesome. Uh, Gen's, yeah. <laughs> I stand Gen's dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a shout out. Let me start. Actually, uh, I recently read this book with my class. Uh, it's called Stealing Home by Jay Torres and David Namasato. And it is a graphic novel about Japanese internment camps in Canada, uh, written for kids. Like, you can actually share it with kids, which I don't recommend with Barefoot Ken. And it's uh, really good. It's good to have that part of history shared too, because that's also important. That sounds great. I'm going to have to try and pick that up. And we know yeah. David Namasato. You know. I know. I went to Japan with David Namasato. <laughs> um, and I'm familiar with Jay Torres' uh, writing yeah, he's done too. a lot of books. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I was just going to really quickly... Uh, I'm Jeff Ellis. I'm really going to quickly shout out The Guardian's Dilemma, which is a, a short graphic novel that was just done by one of my students from Langara, Cecil G. Uh, so this is their first like book with a spine. And uh, they were at VanCaf selling this book. And I they're also the new uh, communications director at Cloudscape Comics. So just, yeah, big shout out to this book. Nice. I have a TV shout out. So I've been enjoying a series called Somebody Somewhere. It's on Crave. I think in the States it's probably HBO, but I can't remember for sure. It's a really understated dramedy 
that I feel like it's it's a little bit difficult to pitch, but it takes place in Kansas, and it's primarily about being even slightly non-conforming in small town America. And there's also a lot of really interesting family dynamic stuff that isn't commonly explored, like adult sisterhood. But I've I've really been impressed by that series, and uh, I think it deserves a wider viewership. Tam, what's our next book? Our next book's going to be much lighter. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Yay! We're going to read Witch Hat Atelier, which is by Kamomame Shirahama, volumes one and two. All right. Uh, the Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. We'd like to thank Sleuth for the music. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Uh, that's not what it's called anymore. It's a lot of, we're on a lot of places. We're, we're on the internet. You can find us. Yeah. Thank you.